Okay, today is July the 27th, 2010. In three days is Friday night at the movie. Just reminding y'all, popcorn, cookies, African Queen. That's the name of the movie. It's going to be The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and Kathy Hitler. And they don't make them like that hardly anymore. So, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here to study your word. We are so thankful for your word. It enlightens us about the things that are really important. It gives us hope, confidence, so that we can be inspired to live the type of life that you would have us live because we believe your promises. You have an absolutely perfect track record. So we pray that you will help us to inculcate these, these doctrines so that not only do we understand them, but that they will be a source of inspiration not only to us, but to whoever else will listen to your truth. So we pray that we will be able to concentrate. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I found my Israel, my glory. You know that night I said I didn't have it? It was in my briefcase. I just couldn't find it. I have lost pretty large items in my briefcase before. Every once in a while I have to stop and just take a shovel and clean it out from time to time. Anyway, this is one of the a few little excerpts from Israel My Glory in the news that I was going to read to you. It says, Warm words for Hezbollah. So John Brennan, Deputy National Secretary, excuse me, Security Advisor for the United States Homeland Security called Jerusalem by its Arabic name, praised Saudi Arabian religious tolerance and encouraged Hezbollah. He was he praised Saudi Arabian religious tolerance. Uh, oh, well, I, that would have to be a short praise at best, because I can't think of anything that they tolerate. If you carry a Bible. Uh, you can be arrested. Uh, you can be, if you are a Muslim and you and you renounce that and become a Christian or any other kind of religion, then that's the uh, penalty of death, execution, and so forth. Now, this is our deputy national security advisor doing this. Remind me. The Zionist Organization of America, ZOA, has called these remarks outrageous and disgraceful. Speaking to an apparently Muslim audience at New York University in February, Brennan first told a story in Arabic, evoking laughter, and concluded with, don't tell the folks who don't speak Arabic what I said. He then said his favorite city in the Middle East is Al-Quds which is Jerusalem. He called it by the Arabic name. And then he says, uh, John Brennan is yet another hand-picked Obama advisor who shows a distinct animus against Israel, 
and partiality for its enemies. Well, he's not alone in that. There's a lot of them that are involved in that. Just showing you that times are getting more and more interesting. Israel is the key. The more hostility we see towards Israel, the more we can be looking forward to Christ's return. Because Israel is, is and has been the key. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Don't mind. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. Here it is up here if you'd like to follow that. I'm just going to fly through this just to bring you up to speed what we covered last time. We've already noted that the text says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. That is not an archangel's voice that is making that sound. It's describing the shout that Jesus Christ Himself will activate or He'll use that shout when He returns for us. He's going to do it Himself. He's not sending angels. He didn't send angels when the church age began on the day of Pentecost. No, nor is He going to send angels when He comes to take His bride. Then with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now that seems, if you just read it like that and we press on, it gives you a little information, but there's so much more there that we've already uh, checked into. And in Acts 1, 9 through 11, I said this covering Christ ascending into heaven, but that is not what is going to happen or, or the return in Acts 1, 11. His second coming, He's going to come back. He's going to touch on the Mount of Olives. All these things are going to happen. That's not what this is talking about. Separate event altogether. Then we went to some Scriptures and saw that the saints, the Old Testament saints, received their resurrection body at the second advent at the end of the tribulation. All these things are key. It's very important for you to be able to sort these things out rightly. That's why I'm giving you these Scriptures. And I've never seen these Scriptures put together most people that you ask, well, when do Old Testament believers receive their resurrection body? They just don't know. When it comes to Scriptures, they really don't have a clue. But here you have them right here. Isaiah 26, 19, Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14, Daniel 1 through 2. I don't have it in this one, but also Daniel 12, 13, Revelation 11, 18. And, of course, the tribulational martyrs will receive their resurrection body at the second advent according to Revelation 24. We've already gone into the shout and with the uh, trump. This is Job. I, I just love this first part of this verse. I think this is one of the most provocative questions in the entire Word of God in Job 14, 14. If a man dies, will he live again? That is the question that so many people struggle with. And they, even believers really question if they will live again, and if so, how, and when will it happen, and how would it happen, all these type of things. These are examples. Psalm 16, 18, uh, 16, 8 through 10 is giving illustrations of Old Testament believers who believed that they were going to seek the Lord again in their flesh, talking about a resurrection body. Then we have Daniel 12, 2. We went through all of these. 
This is talking about Christ talking to Lazarus when he shouted, Come forth. Same word used there. Shout. And then this is describing the voice of the archangel. This really could be tantamount to saying with a voice like that of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God, we went into the different trumpets. There's going to be a trumpet that we see in Revelation. It's the last of a series of trumpets and the judgments that are given. That's not the one that we will hear when Christ returns. These are separate. Not the same trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.52 or 1 Thessalonians 4.16. We went into all that. You should be familiar with that. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. I want you to open your Bibles if you don't have them opened yet. I want you to open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 because I want to make sure that you have those two words underlined in that verse because it's very important. And those two words are in Christ. Only church-age believers are in Christ because that term speaks of something that happens only to church-age believers and it happens to every church-age believer, but no believer of any other dispensation are in Christ because we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happened the first time on Pentecost, 50 days after Christ was resurrected. And they are permanently identified with Jesus Christ, as are we, as a point of salvation. And so this is definitely referring only to church-age believers here. Those are the ones that are going to be rising, not the Old Testament saints. And then we go into these Scriptures, Isaiah 26, 19 through 20, the ones that I mentioned a while ago. All these Scriptures here are mentioning the Old Testament saints getting their resurrection body at the second advent when Christ returns for His millennial reign. Here's more of them. Revelation 11:17 through 18. Revelation 24. Then we went to 1 Thessalonians 4:17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. So this is the first part deals with those who are going to already be dead when Christ returns. And now he's referring, he's, the, it's, it's, verse 17 is dealing with those who are alive. And it could be us. It could be any generation. It's referring to the generation or the people who will be physically alive in their physical bodies when Christ returns. And this describes uh, that they're going to, uh, we all are going to be uh, caught up together with him. And notice the we. Paul is including himself in this. He always does when we're talking about this subject shall be caught up together with them. When we looked at the word harpazo, these are the references that we uh, went to. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we looked at 1 John 3, 2 through 3. We know that when He appears, we went over this, didn't we? Y'all remember this? That word is not we. In fact, it's the uh, Greek word in, which sets up a third-class conditional clause. And it really should be translated, we know that if He appears. So if you don't have that in your Bible, you need to make sure that you make that, that, that change right there. That's E-N, E-A-N, Epsilon, Alpha, Nu. 
And it sets up a third-class conditional clause, which means maybe he will and maybe he won't. And we've already discussed that this, of course, is not saying that Jesus Christ's return to get his bride is only a potential. That is not what this is saying. Because if it was that, then it would be essentially calling Jesus Christ a liar because he said he is coming back. It's not amazing. So when you put this in context, the only deduction you can come out with is that if he appears in our lifetime, that's what is meant here. You never see it in the English because they translated it when, but it's not when, it's if. If he appears during our lifetime is the idea there. And then we will see, so see him as he really is. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And we looked at that. We looked at uh, John 17, 24. This is our Lord's priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me for Thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. And that is going to be answered at the second and I'm excuse me at the rapture. Then we have Philippians 3, 20-21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. No mention here of signs. No mention here of Antichrist. Because we're eagerly waiting Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body from our humble state into the conformity with His vital, uh, body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. Now, this is where we start. That was all just a brief review. We start plowing new ground right here with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, first thing to note is that verses 15 through 17 is one sentence. Now, normally I group those together in one sentence, but it was, it was so long, and this is such critical information, I split it up. But from verse 15 to verse 17, all of that is one sentence. That is, in the Greek it is. Now we have this final short sentence to end the chapter that pertains to the sentence that goes before it. In other words, when it says, therefore, it's talking about what the sentence went before it is what it's going to pertain to. And we have, therefore, comfort. And we have the word comfort here, parakaleo, P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. And you all should be pretty familiar with this by now, this word. Para means to the side, and kaleo means to call. It means to call to the side. It means to exhort, to, to comfort, to encourage. The noun form of the word is used in John 14, 16, and John 16, 14 to describe the Holy Spirit. Comfort and the Holy Spirit go together. I'm going to make a case right here, so just follow my, my reasoning and thinking here. The word comfort, see, when you see this in the English, it doesn't, it depends on what translation you're using, but it really doesn't have the same spunk that it has in the Greek because in John 14, 16 and John 16, 14, it's going to use that same, a cognate of this parakaleo. Parakaleo is a verb, but the cognate is a noun. 
but it's essentially the same word. You know, you, you have different forms of a verb. They call them cognates. And in this case, we're talking about the noun that is found in these two places. So comfort and the Holy Spirit go together. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. That's what we're going to look at. So you can turn into your Bibles to John 14, 16 through 17. Mm-hmm. It's the noun form of parakaleo. <clears throat> now, I have the King James Version. And the reason I have the King James Version, usually I have the New American Standard, but the King James Version calls the Holy Spirit here the Comforter, which is one of the names that it can obviously be translated. The New American Standard has help, Helper. But since I'm making a case here that you can't have comfort apart from the Holy Spirit, here the Holy Spirit, at least in the King James, is called Comforter. And it's the same, it comes from Parakaleo, it's a cognate event. So we have in John 14, 16, and I will pray, <coughs> excuse me, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another Comforter. You see up here on the board? Parakletos. You have parakaleo, the verb. Here you have parakletos. That he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. In other words, this is talking about the world of unbelievers. They don't receive comfort from the Holy Spirit because you have to be a believer before you're going to have comfort from the Holy Spirit. But now it says in contrast, but you know him. He's talking to his disciples here. For he dwelleth with you right then and there. They had the Holy Spirit to, to comfort them to a degree. Sometimes this is called the endowment of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. They had the Holy Spirit come along beside them. But he says, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. You got that? What is that talking about? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus knew that he would be departing the earth in a few days. So in John 13, 16, or excuse me, in John 13 through 16, in those chapters, he was preparing his disciples for his death. This is the upper room discourse, and he, is, he knew that it was just a matter of days, and he was going to exit this planet, and he was trying to prepare his disciples for his death. John 17 is the high priestly prayer for uh, himself, that is Christ, his disciples, and for the church. So when you get to John 13 through 16, the Bible really slows down, and you have there uh, these chapters, four chapters dealing with just a very short period of time because a lot happens then. You know what the upper room discourse is, right? Everybody? This is when the upper room, when they took uh, the Lord's Supper for the first time. And in a few days, Christ was going to be crucified. So he was, he was preparing his disciples for his death. Now, you'll see why I'm saying it this way. He didn't want them to think that he was abandoning them 
and wanted to rescue them, excuse me, reassure them. Here he made allusion to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a hint of a future event in order to encourage them. He's not teaching the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's just letting them understand that he is not abandoning them and that they are going to have comfort, something that they really don't understand, but he is at least acknowledging that he's not going to leave them in the lurch. Now, some claim that church-age doctrine was taught in the Gospels. You know what the Gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are all similar, and they have more of a historic, chronological type of uh, tenor to them, where John is more of a theological aspect to them. But the Gospels are referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some claim that church-age doctrine was taught in the Gospels. Now, it is true that a few things of the church were announced or mentioned, but the book of Acts and the epistles were the teaching of church-age doctrine. That's where they are found in the epistles and in the book of Acts. Now, I'm saying this all for a purpose, and I'll bring it together later. But uh, when we go to... John chapter 14, verse 25 through 26, it gives you an illustration of what I'm saying. This is Christ speaking, and he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, I kept the New American Standard Version here, King James, probably, I can't remember, I'm pretty sure it says Comforter here. But when the Helper, and you have the exact same Greek word here, parakletos, when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So what we see here is Christ is telling them that He's going to send the Helper. The Helper is going to be in them. It never has happened before. In fact, it didn't happen until the day of Pentecost. When, many times when Christ would say these things, the, the disciples were probably nodding their heads, you know, okay, okay. All right. You know, they, they hear what he's saying, but what does that mean? And now he's telling them that this para, parakletos, this helper or this comforter, and it says, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That's where the teaching takes place. The teaching takes place after we have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the epistles and the book of Acts, which takes place after Christ has already been crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. So I'm, I'm telling you that it is certain things in the gospel speak kind of hint at or introduce something of the church age. But it's my contention that church age doctrine is not taught in the gospel. And you'll see why in just a moment. It is God the Holy Spirit who teaches church age doctrines to church age believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit. The gospel gives a few clues as to the church but for the most part, it was still a mystery. Remember, they were still in the age of the Jews. And that's, what, that's the only thing they knew. If church age doctrines 
are taught in the Gospels, it would be easy to be confused about what applied to Israel and what applied to the church. Do you see why I'm making a distinction here, why this is important? Because if you have church-age doctrine being taught in the Old Testament, not just announced, not just a clue or a hint here, Christ telling His disciples that He's going to return. This is in uh, John chapter 14 where He says He's, he's coming back. Well, that's, that's letting them know, hey, I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to abandon you. But it's hardly teaching the rapture, which is a church-age doctrine. Where do you find that? Right here where we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, 16, 17, 18. Right? That's where you get the church-age doctrine and how it's taught. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 52, 53, right in there, you have the uh, doctrines. The doctrine in 1 Corinthians 15 is relative to those who are going to be alive when Christ returns. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it has to do with those who are going to be already dead when Christ returns. So I'm making a distinction as far as church-age doctrine being taught. And my contention is, is that it is taught where it is elaborated on and you get the full scope of training is in the epistles and in the book of Acts. Because that's when the, the, the book of Acts is kind of a tra- transitional book, but it's giving you the history of the first century church. Now, the word church is only found in Matthew. In that gospel, in Matthew is the only gospel where the church is found, and it is used three times. First of all, it's in Matthew 16, 18. Go there. While you're turning that, I'll point something out that might help you remember where these things are. You'll notice up here that the Holy Spirit is mentioned by Christ in, in John 14:16. And if you look at the next phrase where it's mentioned, where I was pointing it out again, it's, the numbers are reversed. You see that? John 16:14. So that's just a, I'm telling you this just to help you remember where this is. In John 14:16 is what we have here. This is where uh, Christ was praying that the Father send uh, another Comforter, and then in the, you reverse the numbers and you get down here to John 14:26. Now we're down here. Let's get back. I didn't want to confuse you, but I just wanted to point that out. <clears throat> okay, so if you're in um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Christ said, Upon this rock I will build my church. This was a hint of something to come that was unknown at the time. Now the church, the word church is ecclesia. Ecclesia. And you have ek, which means out from, and klesia, comes from kaleo, means to call. So it's the called out one. Now here, it's ekklesia. It's, it's referring to the church as we know the church. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about church-age believers make up the body of Christ, which is known as the church. You understand that? You got it? 
Okay. The other, it's on the, the word church in the New Testament is only found in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's given there. And I'm saying that when he says, Upon this rock I will build my church, the context there is obviously saying what we see throughout the New Testament when we're referring to the church, which is us. The, the church is the body of believers, the universal church. We are the church, and we're in the church age. Now, go to Matthew 18:17. That's very close to reversing the numbers on that one, too. You notice that? One verse earlier, and we would just be reversing the numbers again. I don't know. I just, I just noticed things like that. In other words, we just read Matthew 16:18, and now we're going to Matthew 18:17. If it was 18:16, we'd be reversing the numbers again. But I shouldn't bring that out. Just you have enough to chew on without me confusing you about numbers. So it's also found twice in one verse in Matthew 18:17. Jesus was given instructions as to what to do if a fellow believer sins against you, and you will not and, and, and uh, will not admit it. In other words, what do you do if a fellow believer has offended you? He has really disrupted your relationship. You can't get by it. What do you do? Well, the information is being given in Matthew chapter 18. And here I have it up here, or you can look in your Bible or both. Matthew 18, 17, it says, And if he refuses to listen to them, in other words, here's the idea that if, if, you, uh, if a, another believer has offended you, sinned against you, then you are to first of all go to that person. You go to them and try to straighten it out. Don't go behind, behind his back and talk about it to other people. You go to that person and say, look, we have an issue here that has to be resolved. It's, it's breaking up our relationship here. Let's talk about it. Let's resolve this thing. But if he is totally inflexible, he's still hardened, and he takes no responsibility for what he's done, maybe even he's lying and not admitting it or whatever, then you go, you take two other, uh, a few believers, uh, people that you consider mature believers, and they go with you to this person. And what you do is now you have witnesses and you say, okay, I'm not going to be biased here. These people don't have any ax to grind. And you go through the same process and you try to resolve it. If it's not resolved then, then this is where we pick it up in verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, that would be the two witnesses that you took, unbiased witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax, a tax gatherer. Now, my contention here is that this is not talking about the church as the body of Christ. It's not, it's not saying the same thing as what we saw in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 18, when Christ said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And I'm going to explain that in this paragraph. So here we have it. This is, by the way, uh, I don't know if it's here or maybe... Yeah, I have a quote here in just a minute. When a believer sins against another, the two of them should discuss the matter. If the matter can be settled 
at that level, there's no need for it to go any further. But if the sinning brother refuses to listen, two or three witnesses should be taken along for a clear testimony. This was in keeping with the Old Testament precedent, as in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. So this is what I'm saying is this whole context here has a Jewish flavor to it in that you would take two witnesses and by two witnesses would a thing be determined. That was what essentially uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 is saying. And if the sinning brother still fails to recognize his error, the situation should be told before the entire church or assembly. That's another thing with the word ecclesia means. It means the assembly, the called ones. It doesn't have to... It doesn't even have to be referring to church age assembly. Now, we're sitting in church. We go to church. We, use, we are the church. We use these terms all the time. But the word, ecclesia, simply means the called out ones are the assembly. It could be those who are called out to, to go to a town meeting. Even Old Testament believers are, are said to be the assembly, the assembly. And that's how I think it's used here. It's not referring to the, the church age group, but just to the assembled one. And, and here's a quote from John Walbert and Roy B. Zuck from Dallas Theological Seminary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says this, The disciples probably would have understood Jesus to mean the matter should be brought before the Jewish assembly. So what I'm showing you, I'm making the case that church-age doctrine is not taught in the gospel. It is mentioned. There's an intimation of certain things that we're going that we're going to take place, like Christ's return and the Holy Spirit being sent. But outside of that, there's there's hardly anything to be found in the new uh, in the gospel about the church. And so here, what I'm saying is, I agree with Walbert and Zuck that. He's talking about the Jewish assembly. The Jewish assembly could have been um, the synagogue. It could have been just the people who assemble there. Y'all following me so far? Okay. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yes. It's still applicable. Yeah. Yeah. All I'm saying, the fact that the word... Ecclesia, which means the assembly, is used only three times totally in the New Testament, only in the book of Matthew, and twice in this one sentence it's used. But what my contention is, it's not talking about church-age believers or church-age doctrines because it's really kind of expanding on something we find in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And even though it was for the Old Testament saints and the Mosaic law, it's still a good thing for us I mean, it, this is a good way to resolve a, an, an issue. But what I'm saying is, because it uses the word church here, does not mean that it's predicated upon being church-age doctrines that are being taught. It's just talking about the assembly. And that's why when, when Walbert and Zuck say that the hearers would mean, would, would, would uh, think the matter should be brought before the Jewish assembly. See, for us, when we see the word church, boom, boom. That's a word. We, we, we understand it a certain way. But this word means assembly. And it could just as easily be, in fact, in, in a few uh, of the uh, ways that it is translated, is congregation. 
And it's referred to as the congregation of the Jews in the book of Acts. It's talking about the, it's using the same word as here, ecclesia, but it's talking about the Jews, the assembly who left Egypt and went out into the wilderness. So, essentially, if what I'm saying is valid here, and I agree with Walford and Zuck, the word church, in the sense that we understand it as a church, is only mentioned one time when Christ was talking to Peter and says, upon this rock, and he was talking about himself, I will build my church. That's the only place in the Old Testament, in the New Testament where you see the word ecclesia, uh, the assembly referring to the church as a corporate body as we are. And I'm just substantiating why I don't think church age doctrines are taught in the Gospels. Because it would become very confusing if we had elaboration of church age doctrines during the time of still the Mosaic Law and the age of the Jews. And people would start scratching their head and think, okay, well, now which one was, which was for what and so forth? It's just, all it is is Jesus is giving them the hope and the assurance that when he leaves, and see, they didn't even get that. that Christ told them over and over and over again that he was going to die, be crucified, he was going to rise again, and they didn't get it. They still were shocked when it happened. They didn't even get that. So when he says that the um, upon this rock I will build my church, you know, they're nodding and okay. Well, but it was the word was assembly, but he meant it as a corporate body. Yes, yes, and that's that's I'm meant to, I'm right glad you said that because see that's yet future. That didn't have anything to do with right then. In fact, when we were talking about the Holy Spirit, what did he say? He will do this. None of this is applicable for right then. And it's only those couple of very, very few things that are even addressed. And the reason, the, the purpose, is so that Christ wouldn't leave his disciples in the lurch and them saying, oh, well, we've been abandoned. What do we do now? We're, we're desperate. We're panicked. Well, they did do that anyway. They panicked, but it wasn't Christ's fault because he did prepare them in the sense that he gave them a few hints of what, what was going to happen. Now, I'll just tell you this here. One reason I'm making a, a case of this, because in a, in a few moments, golly, I can't believe the time has gone so fast. Anyway, uh, and one reason that I'm being so deliberate in explaining these things is that there are false doctrines as to when and how the rapture is going to take place. You have amillennialists that think that there's not going to be any millennium at all, and we're already, I mean, it's, it's bizarre. And then you have post-millennialism, which thinks that Christ is coming back, but he's not coming back until after the millennium, millennium. And then you have something that is becoming active today is called the pre-wrath rapture. And that's when they think that the Jesus Christ uh, is going to come back for his church. Church-age believers are going to go through at least the first half of the tribulation. And that's why I'm saying that these are important because they go, people that believe that will go into Matthew chapter 24 and where it's explaining things about the Old Testament believers and the second advent of Christ, and they think that it is referring to the rapture. 
Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 30, right in there. And the whole point is that I'm saying it's not taught there. See, if, if they can substantiate that church age doctrine is being taught in the gospel still during the age of the Jews, then they can go to Matthew 24 and other places and try to substantiate something that is the second advent and claim it's the church church age doctrine of the rapture because after all, the church age doctrines are being taught in the gospel. You got it? See why I'm, I'm, I have to bring all this together? So it says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And one another here is alelon, A-L-L-E-L-O-N. It's a, a pronoun, and it's the heirs. Excuse me. It's not a, it's not a, a you know, I'm so used to working with verbs here. It's the accusative plural masculine, and it means one another of the same kind. This would, this would mean believers. It says, therefore, comfort one another. You're comforting fellow believers, and they are of the like kind. Both of you are believers. Both of you are in Christ. And it's reciprocally or mutually. In other words, sometimes you may have to comfort me, or sometimes I might have to comfort you. I think about it uh, to a large extent, and then I think it properly in the context, when someone dies, a loved one dies, and, and they are distraught, we may have to go to that person and uh, comfort them with these these doctrines that they may have either forgotten or just need to be reinforced. Or maybe once someone that we love dies, dies, and then we need to be comforted. That's why it's reciprocal. It's mutual. That's what this word means. Jesus Christ has not abandoned us. Has not abandoned us. He is coming back for us, and so shall we ever be with Him. That's the comfort. And then I'm dealing with, it says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Here are these words. It is the Word of God that is alive and powerful and can penetrate into the depths of the soul and spirit, even giving comfort to those grieving over the loss of a loved one. You hear what I'm saying? You need to give people who are grieving the truth of God's Word because it gives them comfort, it gives them hope if they believe it. If they don't believe it, then there's no comfort there. Now, I copied this. I thought it was pretty neat. Where did I get it from? Uh, Wearsby. Warren Wearsby, uh, the Bible Exposition Commentary. says this. Pause, my friend. Oh, wait. i got to... The, the introduction to it. it says, I once saw a quaint inscription on a gravestone in an old British cemetery not far from Windsor Castle. It read, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. That's what's on the description. Then I have this. I heard about a visitor who read that epitaph and added these lines. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. <laughs> uh, we follow the Lord anyway, don't we? That's not follow the Lord. Okay, I was going to get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. 
as far as the time and epic. But I was going to give you more information with regards to uh, some why all of this is so important, and it has to it centers on what is known as the pre-wrath rapture. And so I thought I'd give you a few details on that. I think I have it where I can bring it up here. Let's see. Yeah, can y'all see that? Okay. Uh, the pre-wrath rapture is based on the idea that church-age believers will go through at least the first half of the last seven years of Daniel's 70th week, which is called by most the tribulation. So you understand what this is. Now, we are pre-tribulationalists. In other words, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to return before the tribulation begins, before Daniel's 70th week begins, before even the first seal is broken. We think that we're out of here. And I can give you some, I don't know whether I should stop right here, not stop, I don't have time to do it tonight, but as I'm going through this is to give you some keys as to why that's not so. But anyway, I'm, my, my endeavor right now is to give you some of the ideas that they think, some of the things that they would uh, propound. So, in order to embrace the pre-wrath rapture, one must do the following. By the way, I got this list from uh, J. White Pentecost, uh, uh, what's the name of Things to Come. So, point number one. They must either deny or at least weaken the dispensational position. Because if we are in the church age, which we are, that's by the way, first fashion this and we have to go into the tribulational period, which is the last of the seven years left for the Jews, when, when, when the, the Jewish dispensation has not ended, it was just interrupted. And the final seven years of the Jewish dispensation is the uh, tribulation. If we are going to enter into that, merge somehow with that, then the dispensational distinctions have to be either, according to this, uh, weakened or denied. Second point. They must deny the strict distinctions between Israel and the church. That goes along with kind of uh, the distinctions of the dispensations as well. Because they only have to, they have to have one point where the resurrection of uh, when Christ is going to return. It's not talking about the second advent. Some call it the second. There's variations on this. Some say that the second advent and the rapture is one and the same, but it's, a, it's an event that's going to take place. And the distinctions between Israel and the church have to be separated because they think that the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected with church-age believers. That's why, do you understand now why I was giving you all those scriptures that detail that the, that the Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected at the second advent? Number three, the tribulation that divides the period into two separate unrelated halves so that the church can go through the first half even though it has no part in the second or last half. These people say that the first half of the tribulation, actually, the wrath of God is not poured out until after the midpoint of the tribulation or of the Daniel 70th week. They say that the 
man, man is going to be uh, take part in some of the uh, judgment, and Satan is, but uh, uh, that is but man is not going to go through the last part. One reason they say that is because in Revelation chapter six is the first time in Revelation that the word wrath is, is used. God's wrath is, is the first time it's used in Revelation is in Revelation chapter 6. And so they say, well, see, that's God's wrath poured out not until the sixth seal is opened, and that is essentially the second advent. But here's the, it's easy enough to disprove that. Not only is Jesus Christ the one that is breaking the seals before any of this judgment can take place, you just think of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis does not have the word wrath in it. Does that mean that there weren't any judgments? Or that God didn't deal in any way judging the, the, the people or the earth at that time? I mean, we have the flood. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, I'm just saying that this is, this is just... Just because the word isn't mentioned till then doesn't mean that it's not happening. And they're saying that there is a distinction between the first half and second half. Now, this is a vast, there's a lot more information. I'm trying to simplify it for you. But you have to understand where they're coming from if you're going to be able to um, help them see that this just ain't so. Number four, they deny the doctrine of the imminence the imminency, I think I should have the, I, I was trying, I was typing this word for word the best I could. I think it said the, the doctrine of the imminency. For all the signs of the first half of the week applies to the church. In other words, we, we think that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. And that is a purifying effect on us. That's why I went to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We're talking about a purifying effect. Third class condition, remember we went over that already? The, the reason that's important, because if he comes in our lifetime or not, he might come at any time. That's a purifying effect in the sense that we want to be found pure. We want to be found as good, search, good faithful servants. So the doctrine of the eminency has to go. Number five, the, the, deny the concept of the church as a mystery. We understand that our dispensations and the doctrines that are taught in the epistles were foreign to anyone until uh, Paul started relating them. The Old Testament didn't know anything about the church age. Complete mystery. The church, even the, the words mystery are used talking about the doctrine. Paul uses the word mysterion, meaning the mystery. And yet, it can't be a mystery because it can't be an imminency because they think the Antichrist has to come and all these seals have to be opened and all this and the, and the midpoint of tribulation has to happen before we're going to be raptured. That, that would kill the imminency and the mystery would be gone. And number six, uh, depend, uh, they must depend on a certain extent on the spiritualizing method of interpretation. Now, we believe in the literal interpretation of God's Word. Now, obviously, in the book of Revelation, there is symbolism. But the, symbol, the symbols always mean something. And sometimes, Roy Zook, on his uh, right book on interpreting Scripture, has it really well. He says, you take Scripture to have its normal meaning unless there is something there that would 
decisively show that it's a symbolic, whether it's a figure of speech being used and so forth. So those, all of those points that I got there was from things to come, Jade White Pentecost, Zondervan, and that's on page 179 and 180. Now, just to show you, can you all see this? This doesn't. I, I, this is a partial list of Bible communicators who reject the pre-wrath theory or of the rapture. Now, just because you have a, a host of people who adhere to the same doctrine does not make it true. I understand that. They all could be wrong. And I'm not saying that this list that I have up here, that all these Bible communicators believe exactly the same thing on every single doctrine. But when all of these communicators are on the same page and they are, all of them adhere to the pre-tribulational rapture, then it hardly can be just brushed off and thought, well, all of them uh, have great insight. These are the, the, the great leaders, at least most of them, some of them, that we respect. These are the doctrinally found teachers of our day. They might be off on a, on a little side, uh, side doctrine here or there or some type of peripheral issue. But I think I would just, I'm just going to go through here and read. And this is just some of the communicators, most of them pastors that I know personally, those that I have read, and so I would put them in this camp. We have C.I. Schofield, Louis J. Schaefer, John F. Walter, J. Dwight Pentecost, H. I. Ironside, R. B. Fink Jr. Now, if I just stopped right there, I think that's pretty impressive already. I'm not, it's not that these people are impressive. These are the fundamental truths that are doctrinally sound. Then we have R.B. Theme the third, Robbie Dean, Dave Hunt, Dan Hill, Henry Hasty, Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, Roy B. Zuck, Arnold Frutenbaum, J.B. Hickson, Bob Bowender, Cliff Beveridge, Clay Ward, Dan Ingram, Joe Griffin, Dave Hunt, David Hunt, uh, Dunn, Orlando Salas, Bruce Bumgardner, Jeremy Thomas, Jim Myers, Tommy Ice, John Eichmann, David Roseland, and your truth. Yes. The I. Schofield is the first one. Yeah. So uh, all I'm saying is for, for someone to see these very doctrinally sound oriented Bible communicators, and they are all on the same page. They all believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. You're, I'm just saying, if you're going to adhere to the pre-wrath rapture or a post-millennialism or amillennialism, you're swimming, you're swimming upstream. Because I can tell you, it was from most in this first column over here that I learned not only my basic doctrine, but advanced doctrine. And they are doctrinally sound, and they are solidly in the pre-tribulational rapture. So again, I'm not saying that just because all these people that are... R.B. King uh, Jr. was my mentor. Just because they believe this does not mean it's automatically true. But it does say that 
something must be pretty obvious. Something must be very um, telling for them all to be on the same page. I'd like to go in and give you more information about this, um, the things that these people believe so that we can explain and, and help them realize that uh, all these Bible communicators aren't wrong, for one thing, and the Bible is, teaches a pre-tribulational rapture, but uh, I have two minutes left. And I don't think in two minutes I can do it justice of giving you that information. My, 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 my intention in giving you these things of, of, the, of what I consider false doctrine and attacks upon the pre-tribulational rapture is so that you will see why it's important that these, all these distinctions, all these specifics that I'm giving you is very important. I, I received an email from someone not too long ago, and they said uh, they were confronted about a, a doctrine that I had I had taught in the not too distant past. And they were they said it's one thing to sit in class and hear these things, because when you're on the front line and someone is propounding something that is a false doctrine, that's when you wish you to pay attention. That's when you wish that you had more. Uh, uh, details in your soul about how to rebut these things. And we are responsible. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we are to be ready to give give uh, the reason for our hope to anyone who comes by and asks us about it, whatever it may be. It means we have to be very alert and up, up to speed. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to prepare you for these things because there are so many false doctrines out there today. And we have to be able to go to these scriptures and see the specifics because the Word of God is abs- it's totally in continuity when it's set with itself. And it all fits and it goes together. And once you start to embrace something that is an aberration, something that is a false doctrine, then what has to happen is you have to start destructing the, the doctrines that you've learned. Foundational doctrines have to be deconstructed in order to embrace false doctrine. I'm talking about doctrines such as the doctrine of uh, the um, dispensations and the distinctions between Israel and the church and all these things. They have to be destructed in order to do this. And it's, a, it's something we have to be aware of and alert. Uh, yes, Steve. Well, I was just going to point at you, but the first pa- pastor was Eddie Adams, and he had said unto uh, uh, close to me. Uh, there you go. Okay, Eddie Adams, our first pastor, and uh, he had said under uh, the teachings of Schofield by another pastor, and he really was a terrific, rightly divider of the Word of God. And one of his favorite sayings was, and I think it's an excellent one, you've got to know whose mail you're reading. And dispensationally, that, that don't fit when you read that, that uh, uh, church age, the church age uh, being ended or called out mid-trip. That doesn't fit the 70 years of Daniel. So you've got to know whose mail you're reading. 
and interpreted it in that light. And you've been doing that. Well, there's a, there's a lot. What I've got to my my job. What makes my job hard, thank you, is there's a vast amount of information, and there's so many things that uh, I could cover, but I'm just trying to boil it down to a very uh, bare bones for you to be able to understand and and be able to re rebut the fundamental things that may be wrong uh, that you can see and know where to go. Just the, the idea that those that are, are the dead in Christ, those believers who already died, those are in Christ. Now, all, the, all Old Testament believers are dead. And if, if they were going to rise, then the Bible wouldn't say that those dead in Christ are going to rise. That's just one little tidbit of how you can rebut these things, but there's several more, and I'm... What I'm trying to do is give you these. I showed you when the second, at the second advent is when all those scriptures that talk about the Old Testament believers being resurrected. They're not going to be resurrected in the midpoint of the tribulation. Neither is the church. So that you'll be able to stand firm for the faith because it is greatly under attack, not only here but in other places. But this is where we are in the scriptures, and that's why I'm going through this. I just thought this might perk your ears up a bit so that you'll be able to remember these things and uh, sort these things out for folks who've gotten confused. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, your word that is always exactly on target, doesn't contradict itself. There's always that continuity there. It, it's logical. It makes sense. And we're so thankful that you have Reveal these things to us and that you've given us the opportunity to inculcate these things so that we can keep from being confused ourselves, but moreover, we're able to help those who have been confused so that they can see it properly and not get off because once you start varying off the, off the course, it can lead to disaster. So you, we thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit that teaches us these things. For we pray this all in Christ's name.